in us and through us. We pray these things in his name. Amen. As you turn to Hebrews chapter 10, Hebrews 10, one of my earliest memories of seeing God depicted uh, outside of the church was a series of movies that came out in the late 70s and 80s titled, Oh God. And then, Oh God, something, Oh God, something else. I don't remember all the titles. There's three or four of them. George Burns uh, was a, a very old comic by then, but he played the character of God. John Diver, the folk artist, played this goofball that God had to help. And uh, George, the, the character of God, was the kind of guy who was safe to be around. Harmless, witty, doting, sarcastic, drove a cab, if I remember right. And I don't remember any of the details. It's probably been 25 years since I've seen these movies. But they were, I remember being funny. But definitely the kind of God who is grandfatherly but cool. You want to be around this kind of God. Fast forward a bunch of years, and now God is portrayed in the Almighty movies by Morgan Freeman. And who doesn't love Morgan Freeman, right? Why can't Siri be the voice of Morgan Freeman? I wonder that all the time. Just a ton of money waiting for him. Again, Morgan Freeman's intelligent, wise, approachable, nice, helpful, the kind of God anyone can get behind. In, in the church growing up, he was depicted in drawings and children's Bibles and flannel graph as welcoming and compassionate, maybe glowing a little bit, attractive, charismatic, someone everyone is drawn to, no one anyone is offended by. Your typical leader of a typical movement everyone wants to be a part of. So outside the church, inside the church, rarely do you get the picture of God that we see in our passage today. The focus is 26 to 31, but I'm going to go back and start at 19 just to get all the context. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, he has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering since he who promised is faithful. And let us watch out for one another to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other in all the more as you see the day approaching. For if we deliberately go on sinning after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire about to consume the adversaries. Anyone who disregarded the law of Moses died without mercy based on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think one will deserve who has trampled on the Son of God, who has regarded as profane the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know the one who has said, vengeance belongs to me, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We've been walking through Hebrews this year as a church, hearing this message from the Spirit of God through an unknown author to the people of God gathered in and around Rome, Italy, in the 60s AD. So these are people who had never seen Jesus themselves, but who had come to know Christ through the profession of the gospel, proclamation of the gospel by others who had seen Jesus. And now they were enduring persecution from this public lifestyle of being the people of God. And they were tempted, as we've seen, to turn around and go in another direction, maybe a safer direction where they won't have as much persecution. And for them, the temptation was, let's go back to Old Testament Judaism. 
Maybe they, that won't be as persecuted as this new movement is being persecuted. And the main thrust of the book of Hebrews, as you've seen throughout the year, is Jesus is better. He's not only so amazing that we shouldn't turn back from following him because he's so amazing and incredible, but as we see in the passage today, to turn back from Jesus will result in the judgment of God. A few weeks ago, we walked through the preceding passage I read, and we saw this encouragement in light of all of Christ has done for us. We are to draw near to God, hold fast our confession, and do all of this in community because we need each other, even more as we see the day approaching. It says there in verse 25. The day approaching is is a day further described in our section today, the day of judgment. Throughout the Bible, the day of the Lord is this final day when Christ returns judges everything, and then establishes eternal state. The end of the temporary state, the beginning of the eternal state. This is actually going to happen, and every day is one day closer. When the New Testament speaks of this day, it speaks of it in terms like it could happen any day, so we live with this expectation, uh, expectation trying to make up new words, that it could happen on any day, so be ready, but there's also a lot of work left to be done, so get to work. And we, we live with this tension. It can happen any day, but get to work because God is incredibly patient and gracious, giving more time for people to repent and not perish. But that passage we looked at a few weeks ago is a beautiful encouragement to God's people. Jesus has done everything. You are invited and welcomed in by your Father in heaven. Enjoy life in his presence. Hold fast. Stay constant in your faith. Let's do this together because we need each other. These are the verses we love to remind each other and be encouraged with. We, we need, have to live in community with each other. We're, we're launching out our new missional communities. It's, it's, it would be a, a, a hard conversation with someone who was a part of the Crossing Church who said, I don't really want to be in one of those. Sorry. You go do your missional community thing. You do your life together thing. But I'm really just kind of okay by myself. We would say, brother, sister, have you read the Bible? Do you understand how God's created you to be in community with other people? It would be a very serious conversation with someone to say, I don't need community. Because God's created us. We know we need it. But that's not all there is to being God's people. We also need to hear and heed the warning passages like we have this morning. And the strongest warnings in the scriptures have to do with the final day of judgment. When life is over and you stand before God, what will be the end result? And the word for, that starts off verse 26, ties together these two sections. Yes, there is great encouragement for God's people as we live out this reality of being his people together, experiencing his presence and his promises. It's called the abundant life by Jesus. And we would say there's no other life like it. But for some... They will be treated as God's enemies because they are God's enemies. And how he will treat them will be by pouring out his judgment and wrath on them. You see this in verse 27. But a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of the fire about to consume the adversaries. You see this in verse 30, 31. For we know the one who has said, this is God, vengeance belongs to me, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. If you are one of these people, verse 31, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So first, how God treats his enemies. One author commented that this description includes a legal, emotional, and physical reality of God's wrath. So legally, God declares them guilty and worthy of judgment. 
And we have all probably at different times in our life have felt the weight of something like that. You did something wrong and you get caught and judgment is coming. Whether it's a kid with their parents. My first real job was a job at Baskin Robbins. I was 14. It's now a H&R Block on Cypress Street in West Renault. But back then it was a Baskin Robbins. And my dad was like, hey, we got bills to pay right here. Why don't you go out and get a job and start contributing a little bit? And I was like, okay, Dad, whatever you say. That wasn't really why he wanted me to get a job. He just wanted me to begin to learn how to be responsible and work and have a boss other than him. I'd been mowing yards, but now this is the real deal. And as a teenager, you get a job at a real place. Usually when you're not at work, you go up and hang out at the, at the, the place that you work because it's just kind of a cool thing to do. So I was hanging out up there one night. I wasn't working, hanging out with a friend and talking to the people who, friends who were working. And maybe there were customers in there. Maybe there, there weren't. I don't remember. But we got to goofing a little bit as teenagers would do, got to throw in stuff and squirt each other with cleanser. Ha ha, this is fun. It was great <clears throat> until we looked out the glass window and a car pulled up with our owner and our manager in it. So immediately we're like, oh, run to the back. I put everything up and I'm back there trying to think like, is there any explanation I can give that would justify what they just saw? Like channeling all of my inner Costanza, like come up with something that would get me out of this pickle. And I had nothing. I was cooked. So I walk out, kind of with my tail between my legs. We go get back in the car. My friend was driving, and, and I'm just now waiting for the phone call that you've been fired from this job that you just got. And it never came. I was living in this dread, this, this terrifying reality. Verse 27 says this terrifying expectation of judgment. I was living with that. But I went back to work the next day or two days later or whatever, and my boss sat me down, and we talked through it, and they were very gracious and compassionate and patient with an idiot who was 14 and I and I kept the job and I learned this really important lesson about there's times and places to goof off and there's times and places you don't this is what it means to be professional this is what it means not to be professional but we've all felt that sense of dread we've all felt the weight of that guilt but this is the heaviest most severe guilt and weight because it's for th these people it's before the one true most righteous judge and there is there is no escaping at this point, there is no getting off. There is no more mercy. The time for grace and mercy has come to an end, and now it's only judgment and punishment. The emotional weight of this is found in the phrase, the fury of his fire, the physical aspect, the fire that consumes his adversaries. These are passages and images that make us really uncomfortable as God's people. In the first church I pastored, there was a stack of plastic license plates that somebody had purchased years before. Some people had on their car, and literally on the license plate it said, Turn or Burn, John 3.16. I know there was a cross on there. There might have been a flame. I don't remember. I should have taken a picture. There was no smartphones then. I should have kept one. And I was thinking, is that really the best summary of John 6, 3.16? Like, is that how I would contextualize that verse to our culture to get them to believe in Jesus? I mean, I guess you could boil it down to the essence of it. I, I guess it's true, right? But is that how we want to communicate that message where all you hear is the, the bad news of the gospel and you're not hearing also the good news of the gospel? It doesn't feel like good news when it's just only avoid the bad news but that doesn't mean the bad news of the gospel isn't also true like we're not headed to a day where God will change what he's clearly revealed in scripture we're not headed to a day where God will be so overcome with sympathy or whatever other human trait we want to attribute to him 
that he's going to do away with what he's already revealed and end up just allowing everyone into heaven. It's always been true of God, will always be true of God, and how he ultimately treats his enemies. The fact that we can still sin today and not be consumed by the fire of his wrath is amazing grace and mercy on his part. The fact that billions live and sin every single day and are not immediately consumed by the fire of his wrath is incredible mercy and grace on his part. He is that holy. The fire of God consuming the enemies of God is a repeated image in the Bible. In the Old Testament, of course, we think of Sodom and Gomorrah, which is on the minds of James and John in the New Testament when the sons of thunder wanted to call down fire from heaven on the unbelieving Samaritans. We think of the sons of Korah in number 16 who presented themselves before God as a better leader than Moses. And God directed Moses to create this situation in which God would demonstrate, I'm in charge of this. I appointed Moses. You reject Moses, you reject me. And you reject me, you become my enemy. In number 16, just as he finished speaking all these words, the ground beneath them split open. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed them and their households, all of Korah's people and all their possessions. They went down alive into Sheol, a place of death, with all that belonged to them. The earth closed over them, and they vanished from the assembly. At their cries, all the people of Israel who were around them fled because they thought the earth may swallow us too. Fire also came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were presenting the incense. That's the stuff of nightmares, horror movies. But this is the God in the Old Testament, so we're okay today. That's how he used to be. Zephaniah 3.8, Therefore wait for me, this is the Lord's declaration, until the day I rise up for plunder. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, in order to pour out my indignation on them, all of my burning anger, for the whole earth will be consumed by the fire of my jealousy. That's God in the Old Testament. Jesus comes along. He's our friend He's compassionate, he's merciful, he's kind, he's patient, gracious, healer, helper, tender with children. He's George Burns, he's Morgan Freeman, he's Flannel Graf Jesus. Who's, who can be offended by Flannel Graf Jesus? And Jesus is all of that, not the George Burns, Morgan Freeman, Flannel Graf, but he is tender, compassionate, kind, loving, merciful, etc. But Jesus also spoke more about the wrath of God poured out on sin and the enemies of God than anyone else in the scriptures. So if you're only presented this reality of Jesus as this guy we all want to be around only, and you don't also have Jesus speaking hard truths, you're not getting the full picture. Jesus, in fact, talked about this reality more than he talked about heaven and with more vivid detail than anyone else in the scriptures. So we're not giving an accurate picture of Jesus if we leave this out Jesus could be very stern and forceful with, say, the religious hypocrites or when he fashioned a whip in John 2 and drove out the crooked money changers from the temple. Matthew 25, he's giving a parable describing those on the right and those on the left, how they'd be treated differently based on how they treated the least of these people who are sick, people in prison, oppressed, naked, and hungry. And Jesus' people show compassion and mercy to the least of these, and thus we're doing that to Jesus. And people who are not Jesus' people don't care about the least of these, and are thus don't care about Jesus. And the last verse says, and they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. 
In Luke 16, Jesus calls hell a place of eternal torment. In Mark 9, a place of unquenchable fire where the worm does not die. In Matthew 13, a place where people will gnash their teeth in anguish and regret. In Luke 16, it's a place of no return, not even to warn the loved ones to repent so they don't have to come here. He calls hell a place of outer darkness in Matthew 25. And Matthew 10 compares it to Gehenna, which was a trash dump outside the walls of Jerusalem that had a perpetual fire going, burning trash, and a place where maggots abounded. And it doesn't disappear through the rest of the scriptures. It's only confirmed at the end, Revelation 20. The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and one seated on it, earth and heaven fled from his presence and no place was found for them. I also saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne and the books were opened and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by what was written in the books and the sea gave up the dead that were in it and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. Each one was judged according to their works. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, a lake of fire. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. I, I'm uncomfortable reading that to, to, to know, know that there are image bearers of God who are facing that reality. Like there's something deep in us that grieves that that's, that's going to be people, people we know one day. Some people maybe aren't grieved by that. Maybe people turn or burn, people love it. That's how they think we should present this. Some people try to explain it away because it makes them so uncomfortable. Maybe Jesus isn't being literal. This is all symbolic, figurative language. Eternal fire, worms that don't die in the fire, darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth, a trash dump, punishment. Okay, it's all symbolic. Great. Of what? Symbolic of what? This is symbolic. This wedding ring, costly metal, it's beautiful, it's strong, it's around so it never ends. Symbolic of my marriage to Jennifer, I wear this publicly so everyone knows I'm taken, I'm hers, she is mine. Our marriage is, by God's grace, beautiful and strong and won't end until only death rips us apart. We get symbols. So if you want to say it's all symbolic, then what's it symbolic of? What is it trying to accurately represent? Because images and symbols are supposed to represent a reality in an accurate way. So, so what is it symbolic of that is fire, darkness, and torment forever if it's not literal? Well, it, maybe it's not eternal. There will come a point in which God will cease punishment and judgment. Again, I, I hope that's true. I wish that were true. But we have to do really interesting things with the language of the Bible to make that true. Because the same language that describes eternal life and reward describes eternal Judgment And are we really making it any better by lessening the length of time? Christless eternity is Christless eternity. That's the ultimate horror of hell, being away forever from the giver and sustainer of life. So the full picture of Scripture is God is a God of grace and God is a God of judgment. And if you are the one facing His judgment and punishment and the fury of His wrath against sin, then indeed it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of of a living God. Well, who is this person who's facing this from this passage in Hebrews 10? Who are God's enemies? Well, verse 26. For if we deliberately go on sinning after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Verse 28. 
Anyone who disregarded the law of Moses died without mercy based on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more worse punishment do you think one will deserve who has trampled on the Son of God, who has regarded as profane the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? Four descriptions here of the one who would be terrified because they are in danger of falling into the hands of the living God who's going to pour out his wrath on them. Is First, a person who... Uh, those who deliberately go on sinning after receiving the knowledge of truth. Now, the word deliberately is actually the word of emphasis in the original language of the New Testament. It comes first in the, the sentence in the Greek, which is a way to emphasize something, put it first in the sentence. Greek grammar doesn't follow the same rules as English grammar. And the idea of deliberate sin comes from, if you've been in Hebrews for 10 chapters in four to five months, you know this idea comes from the Old Testament. Everything comes from the Old Testament in Hebrews. Numbers 15 talks about willful or deliberate sin versus unintentional sin. One is defiance. I'm doing this knowingly, willingly, shaking my fist in the face of God. And one is, it's not, a, it's not oops. It's more than oops. But it's also not outright rebellion against God, defiant against God. This is not someone struggling with doubt or faith or struggling with temptation. And when they sin and the struggle with temptation, they immediately like, that's wrong. I don't want to be that person. Run back to Jesus in repentance and faith. Heal me, forgive me, restore me, help me, Jesus. I don't want to be that person. This willful disobedience, deliberately sinning and not stopping, is someone who's shaking their fists in the face of God while they're doing it, while professing to be a Christian, part of God's people, which is who this is addressed to. So this is not a lost person either. To deliberately go on sinning after receiving the knowledge of truth is to embrace sin so openly, defiantly, rebelliously that even though you've received the knowledge of truth and you profess to be a Christian, your life looks nothing like it. Even if you're able to disguise it and hide it from people, inside it's rotten to the core. Every believer struggles with sin. Every single believer struggles with sin. If you say you don't struggle with sin, you're not being honest with yourself, or you have redefined sin to look, to look like you're good, your lifestyle is good, and other people not like you are not good. So you're just blinded by your pride and self-righteousness and arrogance. Every believer struggles with sin, but this is different. This is different than that, a struggle with sin. This is deliberately, willfully going on in sin with a full understanding of how serious sin, are, sin is, how, serious, how sinful they are, and there is no remorse, repentance, or sorrow. It's just, how much more can I get away with? It might be the difference between Peter and Judas. Peter was weak. We see his mistakes throughout the Gospels. He openly denied his relationship with Jesus Christ when he was facing the threat of persecution. But as soon as he saw Jesus, there was repentance and remorse. Judas was scheming and plotting the entire time, waiting for his opportunity, using Jesus as a means to his end. And you see the commentary by the gospel writers throughout the gospels highlighting this. This is deliberate, open, defiant sin despite receiving the knowledge of the truth. The knowledge of the truth is an expression that's used several times in Paul's letters to speak of conversion. 1 Timothy 2.4, who wants everyone to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. 2 Timothy 2.25, instructing his opponents with gentleness, perhaps God will grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of the truth. So this is the writer of Hebrews addressing this to the church, 
people who have or are publicly professing to be the converted, those who have received and believed in the knowledge of the truth. He said in the, the other se- severe passage, warning passage in Hebrews, Hebrews 6, for it is impossible to renew to repentance those who were once enlightened, who tasted the heavenly gift, who shared in the Holy Spirit, who tasted God's word and the powers of the coming age and have fallen away. And we talked about that f- several months ago. This is a warning to the church, to those who confess and profess to follow Jesus, but have deliberately, intentionally engaged in sin to such a degree that their life gives no evidence that they love him. This is what's called the apostate. This is not a genuine believer losing his salvation. This is a professing believer who over time proves that they are not a genuine believer and they walk away. This is the the threat these believers are facing in Hebrews, that they would turn away from Jesus and go and embrace Judaism again. If you're sitting here and you're afraid, like what if this is me? And there's a sense of dread in your gut. But you don't want this to be you because you love Jesus and you really don't want to live under the power of sin, but deep down you want to be someone who knows and loves Jesus, then then do what we say every single week when someone stands up here to proclaim the gospel. Repent and believe and trust in Jesus again. Which means this is not you. (laughs) This is not you. If you hear this and you're like, I don't want to be that person. I want to make sure I'm not that person. I believe in Jesus. I'm trusting him. I hate sin. I love Jesus. This is not you. The warning passage has done its work. It's part of how God sanctifies and keeps us. His people heed this and self-examine and run to Jesus again. If this were to be someone here, your response wouldn't be repentance and faith. It would just be continued hard-heartedness and smug self-righteousness. And you'd be further described in verse 29, those who have trampled on the Son of God. The person described in verse 29 is Someone who's trampled on the Son of God. The Son of God first declared at the beginning of this book as no one higher or greater or more worthy of all worship and adoration. This person would literally walk over Jesus, the Son of God, like a doormat. Treat him with no more respect, dignity, and honor than as somewhere to wipe their feet. Nothing really special about Jesus. He's just in my way. Let me walk over him to get to where I want to get. Third quality is those who regard as profane the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. Also described as, as this person who, who um, at one time professed Jesus and his blood as their means of sanctification. Now they profane it, which means they treat it as something you would throw away like a dirty diaper. As one author says, the language of the Old Testament would be discarding a used menstrual cloth. That's how unprecious the blood of Jesus would be to this person. I don't want or need his purification through his blood. I'd rather have my sin. When we invite you to the table each Sunday to share in communion by saying, those who are repentant, come. Those who are baptized, come. Who have publicly professed faith in Jesus, come. Who shouldn't come? Like If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, you've never publicly professed faith in him through baptism, you you shouldn't participate in this yet. You should wait and let it be known you are indeed one of his people. Or if you're not repentant, if this is for whatever reason a game or a show or, or you're, you're really just loving sin more than you're loving Jesus, but you're here because you've got to make people think you're a good person, you shouldn't come to the table. 
1 Corinthians 11 would say you are taking this meal in an unworthy manner and you are in danger of what the Corinthian church was in danger of where believers were getting sick and dying because they were doing that. But to the people of God, this meal represents something very precious and meaningful that Jesus, the Son of God, would shed his blood for our sins. We who are the enemies of God apart from Jesus, only deserving judgment and death. And he would do that for us. Drinking of this cup and eating of this bread, this represents the body and blood of Jesus, the one who loves us that much. Significant, special means worship to us. He stepped in and said, let me die for them. And to love sin and reject Jesus and his blood sacrifice for us ultimately means you will be rejected and punished as an enemy of God. And then lastly, those who have insulted the spirit of grace, verse 28, says that much like blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which is the unforgivable sin, so this also is a, such a total rejection of God and his spirit of grace that redeems us and showers his, his love and grace on us. God is so willing to do that for those who are repentant, but for some they don't even want it. Like if if you can imagine a, a child or a teen or kid, even be an adult who's so rebellious that their parent is just so willing to overwhelm them with love and grace and mercy and patience. Just whatever it takes, I will lay down my life for you to be healthy, for you to be in a good place. And this person that you're trying to love and shower with love, grace, and mercy is so rebellious, they don't even want it. They harden their heart to even that. The love of the one who is created to love them the most on earth becomes something they hate because it gets in the way of their kingdom. And the reality is the Lord will allow this person to absolutely walk away. He will ultimately give them what they want. The rich young ruler approached Jesus asking how he could inherit eternal life should have been a slam dunk, easy conversion. But after a conversation with him that ultimately revealed that the rich young ruler wanted his money and possessions more than Jesus and eternal life, he went away sad, and Jesus did not chase him down. He let him walk away. There comes a point where the rejection of God is so ultimate and final, all that remains is final judgment, especially for those who have received this ultimate revelation of Jesus and have rejected God's ultimate demonstration of love and grace. So again, verse 28, 29. Anyone who disregarded the law of Moses died without mercy based on the testimony of two, three witnesses. How much worse punishment? The how much more argument. If someone in the days of Moses were to be absolutely guilty of idolatry as evidenced by two, three witnesses and put to death, no more mercy in this life, How much worse to reject God's own son and the grace of mercy he desires to lavish on us. There would not only be no more mercy in this life, there would be no more mercy forever. Forever. And some of you may recognize that phrase in verse 31. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It reminds us of a sermon, Jonathan Edwards, a really famous sermon, part of the Great Awakening, First Great Awakening, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And a lot of people, you hear that title, you see this passage, and you imagine Edwards is just pounding the pulpit and spitting everywhere and firing his eyes, and people are being convicted by this incredible Puritan preacher. 
But Edwards was actually very conscious about not wanting to manipulate his people emotionally. And he had his sermon written on small pieces of paper and he would quietly read it to them because he wanted the conviction to come from the Spirit of God and the Word of God. And he would probably, maybe in this kind of voice, or loud, there's no microphones, but he had to speak loud enough for them to hear. And one author writes, Edwards was less concerned with God's wrath than with his grace, which he freely extended to sinners who repented. Edwards gave his people a whiff of the sulfurs of hell that they might deeply inhale the fragrances of grace. It's similar to when we pastored and lived uh, in the first church we were at in Spears, Louisiana. The parsonage was right on Highway 15, great house we lived in, great big yard. Abigail was 18 months old when we moved there. Immigrace was born there, not literally in the house. I mean, it was rural, but it wasn't that rural. We did have hospitals in driving distance. But we had this huge, great front yard with no fence right on Highway 15 where huge 18-wheelers would pass every couple of minutes. Cars would go in 50, 60, 70 miles an hour. So I took Abigail when we first moved there and grabbed her by the hand and we walked out to that road as close as we could get and feel safe and just watch these big trucks come by. And I was like, Abigail, what do you think would happen if you ran in that road right now? She probably said, I don't know. Well, you're going to be squished like a bud. You're going to be dead. Abigail, what would happen if you ran that road right now? Squished like a bug, Daddy. Okay. And then we turn around and look at this big grassy yard. Abigail, this is life. There's freedom and joy right here. The road is death. In all the years we lived there, she never ran in the road. So it worked. That's kind of like the warning passage in Hebrews 10. In Jesus, there is life because he's willing to die so you might live. Outside of Jesus, there's only death. Death now and death forever. It's that stark. It's that cut and dry. So church, Christian, if you are in danger of believing you can find life and salvation apart from Jesus, don't be a fool. There is no life outside of Jesus, not eternal life, not abundant life. It's only found in him. Apart from Jesus, you will continue to live. But when death comes, there will only be more death. The good news of this passage is found in verse 26. It says, if we deliberately go on sinning after receiving the knowledge of the truth, There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. For those who have deliberately rejected Jesus, there is no longer a sacrifice for sins. It's not that Jesus' sacrifice can't still save, but their rejection of Jesus is so complete they don't want it. That's the bad news. The good news, as we've seen throughout the book of Hebrews, is that Jesus' sacrifice for our sins is and will be forever effective to save us, to keep us, to preserve us now and forever. And that sacrifice is still available to all who repent and embrace Jesus as their Savior and as their King. So the question remains, either we receive God's gracious gift of salvation and life in Jesus by Jesus being punished and dying for our sins, or we reject Jesus' sacrifice and you say, no, I would rather be punished myself for my sins. This should drive us to self-examination that hopefully leads to more repentance and faith and trust in Jesus as our sacrifice and Savior, which leads to even more worship of Jesus because we understand that all we really deserve is God's wrath and condemnation and death. That's all we've earned. And so when we share in this meal in a few minutes, it's a mixture of this somber joy. As we say often, we are so sinful, Jesus had to die, but we are also so loved, he was glad to die. 
But then this worship leads to devotion and obedience. And we live, leave here even more passionate for more people to come to know this amazing Jesus before it's too late for them. We're driven to pray for people we know who are far from God, chasing sin. Maybe they've never really heard the gospel, and now we can share it. Maybe they've heard it and heard it and heard it. And like a massive majority of people in the gospel-haunted South, they profess to be a Christian, but they live like an apostate as described in these verses. And we can lovingly run to them and say, before it's too late, will you consider this? And we are driven even more to pray for, for those and to get the gospel to those who have yet to hear and who are dying every day and entering a Christless eternity the Muslim Turkish people in Germany, the Muslim Wanshi people in Indonesia, the varied religious people in southwest China, the Aceh, the Bama, the Bonin, the Tongren, the Tibetan Jone, Tibetan Boyu, the Hani, Jairong, Pumi, Hui, and Uyghurs, and many, many more. God, help us get to them before it's too late. Father, thank you so much for all you have done to give us life and forgiveness, to make us your people. Thank you that we are not dead, but we are alive with lives and voices and, and resources and time and energy to get this good news of Jesus to more people. And it's exactly why we aren't dead. It's why we are still living. And these people live in our city. They live next to us in homes and neighborhoods. They go to the same school as our kids. They play on the same sports teams. They work in the restaurants we eat in. They have jobs with us. And either they've never heard the gospel or they have heard a, a bad version of the gospel or they're just chasing and loving sin more than they realize how much you have chased after them. You have sent us. You're going to continue to send us with the message of the gospel. And so help us. Be bold. Be loving. Speak truth. But do it with kindness and gentleness. I pray that you would speak peace to anyone's heart who is struggling with assurance of salvation. That you would, as a father speaking to a child, say, You are my dearly loved son. You are my dearly loved daughter. for those who need the full conviction of the Holy Spirit to bring them into salvation today, may the Holy Spirit do that as well. We ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.